Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Barmirolo, July 17th, 1796. I have received your letter, my adorable friend. It has filled my heart with joy. I am grateful to you for the trouble you have taken to send me the news. Since I left you, I have been constantly depressed. My happiness is to be near you. I live over in my memory your tears, your affectionate solicitude, the charms of the incomparable Josephine Kindle, a burning and a glowing flame in my heart. Napoleon and Josephine are known as the great love affair in history. They're up there with Antony and Cleopatra. They're even up there with Napoleon's nemesis, Nelson, and Lady Emma Hamilton. And the great thing about this relationship is we know the intimate details of it because of hundreds of passionate letters he sent to her over the years. I hope you will soon join me. I felt that I loved you months ago, but since my separation from you, I feel that I love you a thousandfold more. It's an apocryphal story that as a young girl growing up in the Caribbean island of Martinique, a fortune teller told Josephine that one day she'd be queen of France, more than a queen. Whether that really happened or not, I suspect fortune tellers told young girls they'd be queens quite a lot. However, on this occasion, it did actually come true. In Napoleon's new world order, Josephine became the first empress of the French. She was born in June 1763. Uh, she arrived in continental Europe as the young wife of a politician, Alexandra de Beauharnais, with whom she had two children. She'd been married at just 16. She'd found her husband unfaithful on multiple occasions. And while living in France, they soon divorced. In 1794, at the height of the French Revolution's terror, Alexandra was arrested for treason. Josephine was thrown into prison. In the end, he was sent to the guillotine, but she managed to negotiate her release. After the revolution, Paris was perhaps a little bit like certain places after the First World War, a time of sexual liberation, renewed prosperity and freedom. The ordeal had been a terrible one for Josephine. To deal with the trauma that she'd been left with, she and other survivors lost themselves in debauchery, socialising and sex. Josephine became a mistress, a courtesan to rich men. 
She was glamorous, she was smart, she was alluring. She had an elegant figure with a magnetic aura. Though it said she had bad teeth, she made sure that she only smiled rarely. She had several strategic affairs with influential political figures, but as she got older, passing 30, she knew she had to secure her future. The men she was having dalliances with weren't interested in marriage. She had to look elsewhere. It was in 1795 at a ball hosted by Paul Barras, one of the most important men in France and her sometime lover, that she met a 26-year-old stocky Corsican, Napoleon Bonaparte. Supposedly, Barras wanted rid of Josephine because she'd grown accustomed to a lavish lifestyle and she was burning through his money. She was looking for a man who could support her and Napoleon was looking for an experienced, aristocratic woman who could help smooth his way into the upper echelons of politics and society. It may have started as a relationship of convenience, but it wasn't long before Napoleon was smitten. You'll listen to episode three of our series on the great French commander and the subject of the new Ridley Scott movie that everyone's talking about. Today we're delving into Napoleon's love life with Josephine and other lovers who occupied his attention when he wasn't on the battlefield. There was only one woman who I could call on to do this episode with. A woman who I got to know as a matter of convenience, but with whom I am also now smitten. And that is the incredible Dr. Kate Lister. She's a sex historian and she's the host of our sister podcast, Betwixt the Sheets. She and I met fittingly in a former lace factory in the East End of London to poke around into Napoleon's private life. Kate, welcome to the show. Hi, Dan. Thank you for inviting me onto the show. Good to see you. Now, this will not come as a surprise to you, but I was a serious loser, bad hair, friendless teenager, 14-year-old in particular. And so I'm, I feel I got some empathy for these struggling despots of, of history. What was Napoleon? Because Napoleon did not have an easy tween-age, early teenage life, right? I mean, he came good in the end. For sure. But... He conquered. <laughs> he conquered everything. He made up for it, right? But but as a, as a kid, he's from he's from Corsica. Yeah. We'd have had a strange accent. He was not. He was from a rough, sort of bit of a rough aristocratic background. But he would have been at school with loads of people that were mm. much posher than him. Mm. What was that like? It was rough for him. It was rough. He was quite awkward. He was quite clunky. Is sort of the only word that I can think yeah. of. Is when people very relatable. <laughs> when people Thank write you. about him, he's kind of scruffy. He's kind of awkward. He doesn't quite for in and it's not just the accent that makes him stand out and the fact that he does it's not quite an impoverished background but by the standards of the people he was running with he was practically a peasant that all made him stand out but he was also he wasn't great at talking to people he wasn't he wasn't blessed with like the gift of the gab and endless charm okay i'm gonna come to an expert here okay. dating expert <laughs> Girls like the talking thing, don't they? They do. Right. So, did, so was, he, was he successful well, in, his first, in his first romantic adventures? They also like the imperial conqueror thing. So oh, yeah, again, that's fine. It, it came... Po- post Austerlitz, <laughs> he could pull anyone. Fine, but what about up front? What about beginning? Right. 
he writes a lot in his diaries, so we have got the sources about his earliest sexual encounters. And like many young men in France, Napoleon lost his virginity in a brothel. Huh. And he's a teenager at this point, is he? He's 18. He's 18. 18 and running around Paris. Wow. Um, but what's interesting about it is he seems to have a real aversion to sex and sexuality. He is really uncomfortable around it, whereas his peers were just, you know, like, let, let's go, let's do it. You can't get them out of the brothel. He writes about it that he's really upset that he's that he can't stay away from this debauchery is the word that he uses. He's quite serious-minded, isn't he? Very serious. He thinks he's one of the, a great world historical figure, even as a teenager. Yep. And therefore, like, what the physicality, the muckiness of sex is kind of freaking he him out. He thinks mucky is a good word for it, but he's also desperately attracted to it. So the time he manages to lose his virginity, he picks up um, a sex worker on the street and he writes about this in his diary like he's recording an experiment. It's the weirdest thing. And the way he talks to her, and this is from his own perspective, this is his best slant on it. You read it and you just think, you are a strange, strange duck, Napoleon. So he goes up to this. First of all, he spots her and he thinks that she's more bashful than all of the others. So that appeals to okay. him. Right. And then he says, he says that, that he's usually disgusted by them, that he's usually like so revolted to even look at him. He feels sick. But for some reason, this time he's going he's gonna to go for it. So he goes over to her and his opening line is, don't you think you could be doing something better to earn your living? <laughs> it's like, and he then proceeds to interrogate her about where did you come from? How did you end up like this? Would you like to be doing something else? And then he finishes it off with this weird phrasing of like, let's go back to my hotel so you can get your satisfaction or something. Like, Treat yourself. Right, exactly. <laughs> you, you lucky, lucky girl getting to have a, a go on this. And he was a virgin and he draws a kind of a discreet veil over it about exactly what happens. But that's how he lost his... Virginity, just going up to this this girl on the street and going, you could be doing something better else with your time. Do you fancy a go on this, you, you lucky duck? <laughs> that is so interesting. Weird, isn't it? I love it. It's weird. So the French Revolution has started. Mm. He's kind of knocking about. He's, it's, it's, he's slightly unsure what's going on. But there are opportunities there. Are there opportunities sexually for him as well? And there, would have, there would have been for other people. <laughs> You're better looking. <laughs> if he'd been more in a mind to actually indulge, but you get a sense from him that he's this really earnest young man and he does have sex. He writes about it. It's very, tra it is a transaction. He's paying for it, but it's very transactional. And he, I sort of get a sense from him, and I might uh, be wrong on this, but a sense from him that he views sex as this kind of, this very weak distraction that only, that lesser men are concerned with and he almost prides himself on being above that. He's not because he indulges, but he views it and, and people enjoy sex as being weak and distractible. But you've, you've literally written a book on that, which mm. is why do we humans find sex so difficult, given that we all do it, we're all a product of it, mm. and, but we find it so difficult to rationalise Particularly mm. if you see yourself as like an important, rational being who's trying to change the world and a figure of the Enlightenment. It's like, and yet this sex is something that he wants but is totally embarrassed by. Or I think it comes from reading it in opposition to... So you've got this, this opposition of emotion and sex being that and ration and reason and philosophical thought. And they're often gendered as being it's women that are emotional and seductive and it's men that are sensible and have sensible thoughts. And that was very much in the mix in Enlightenment thinking. 
And he was very much a product of Rousseau's philosophy, although Rousseau certainly didn't deny himself <laughs> sex when he wanted it. But I think he viewed himself as a creature of logic, reason and rationale. And he viewed sex as in opposition to that. It's weird, he's like almost a bit English. He, he's kind of coming across as a bit of a North European... He does seem very uncomfortable with it. But then he channeled all of it into conquering the world, didn't he? <laughs> so maybe there's lessons for all of us here. I'm interested in... The, the film really hangs around this relationship between Napoleon and Josephine, doesn't it? And it really, yeah. right from the beginning, it start, you get a sense that Josephine is sort of tolerating this kind of awkward, jumped-up figure. Yeah, you do. And a lot of their history and the mystery that surrounds them is often packaged as that, is that Napoleon was the one that was like really invested, really intense, really over the top, like to the point where a restraining order might be <laughs> might be required at some point. And that Josephine is framed as being much cooler to this. She was older than he was. She was 32 with two kids and he was he was 26. And it's often framed as like almost that Napoleon was the last chopper out of Saigon for her, that she had to, <laughs> that like there was nothing else on offer. Yeah, and I never liked that framing of it. Because, because that, but that's interesting, is it? Because, yes, she had been the lover of other senior yeah. revolutionary figures yeah. and she kind of ended up with this Corsican because she was sort of falling from favour a little bit. I have heard that and I've read that and I know why people say that, but I also think she had, she had a lot going for her, oh, you know. Really? She was renowned as an absolute beauty, but more than that, she was charming and she was funny and she was intellectual. She was one of those people that just exudes charm and she absolutely captivated any room that she was in. I think that she could have found other opportunities, but you've also got to frame it within the fact that, well, she is a single mum with two kids. She's making her money, you know, by hustling, isn't she? she it's useful to think of it, I think, in terms of being a courtesan. So she's older than him, yep. she's an aristocrat, she's done a lot of living. She has, and her name wasn't Josephine. Oh, really? No, she's gone down in history as Josephine, but Josephine was Napoleon's name for her. Her name was Maria, and she went by Rose before she met Napoleon. He just, that was her name. What? One of her middle names was Joseph. Joseph. So I think that he, he see, but he basically just went, I, I now give you a new name. <laughs> Your yes. name is now Josephine. That's extraordinary. <laughs> so I wonder if that was him trying to say, let's have a blank slate. You've lived, you've loved, you've suffered, I'd like you to be someone different now. It's a hell of a flex, isn't it? That you date somebody, you sleep with someone, and then you go, I'm gonna change your name. <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna, your name is now Steve. But it might have been that. I mean, that's quite, I'd never thought about it before as a way of drawing a line under everything that had gone before, that she has a new identity, she's a new person to him. Whatever it was, she didn't seem to fight it, and she's certainly gone down in history as Josephine. But that was his name for, for her. How did they meet? They met at, after the French Revolution, it became weirdly fashionable for people who had survived it to get together. Again, like a post-traumatic stress thing, they would have balls and they would be called survivor's balls. And in the film, you see her with her hair cropped really short in the beginning. That was very fashionable amongst aristocratic women that had escaped the guillotine because obviously they'd cut all their hair off before they went to the guillotine. You see her with the choker on as well. That was like a status symbol because it represented the blade which is kind of ironic, like you can still see them today, ruby chokers, like these cost millions and millions of francs symbolizing the, the revolution of people that got executed for having millions and millions of francs. But anyway, she was there holding court. She was the mistress of a very, very wealthy man and Napoleon was there too. And he was absolutely 
entranced by it. And in the film, that moment is portrayed as a very awkward, supremely talented, sort of troubled genius mm -hmm. coming in in his like uniform to this party where there's all these sophisticated people hanging out and being cool. And they have this moment of chemistry. I love that in the film where he just kind of goes, I've got an army, or whatever yeah. <laughs> he says. I'm really impressive. I'm really impressive. I'm Maybe being... not in this exact context, but I am. <laughs> and she just walks right up to him, doesn't she? And she says, you were staring at me. Yeah. And he doesn't even realise that he was. We don't have any records of exactly what that exchange was, but it's often framed as she needed him. She needed his money, she needed his power, she needed his influence. He needed her too, because she was very well connected. And she knew people, and people liked her. He was very awkward and he wasn't, I mean, he was great at rallying his troops and he was great at military tactics and love letters, phenomenal. But just meeting people, people walking around and just charisma, he wasn't great at that, but she was. So she had all these connections. She could introduce him to people. She could finesse him. He needed her as well. And I think that he was just one of many, many men that fell for Josephine. Because her background was quite aristocratic. Yep. So before the revolution, she was part of France's ruling class. Yeah. I mean, she has a tough revolution. She has a very tough revolution. She was one of many aristocrats that was rounded up and kept in jail, just waiting. They didn't know if they were going to be executed. They didn't know when they were going to be executed. People would come in and just take them out of the jail each day and they'd just... And these conditions in these jails are horrendous. It's just loads of people, men, women, everyone piled in. They don't have enough food. It's dirty. It's crowded. And she was in there for a long time. Her husband was guillotined. She didn't know if she was going to be guillotined. And one of the things that you read about a lot in these conditions, now it wasn't just in French jails. All across, If you were pregnant, you'd get a stay of execution. It was called pleading your belly. And that meant that in jails, a lot of women would be trying to get pregnant. For, that makes perfect sense to me. So there'd have been lots of sexual immorality, there'd been lots of abuse. There's no human rights in a jail waiting to be guillotined. It would have just been horrific. And she lived through that. And I think a much more sympathetic portrait of Josephine, and maybe lots of people went through that, is that this is a woman dealing with what we'd probably call post-traumatic stress disorder. And coming out of prison, she's alive, but yep. her status in society is now dependent on powerful men. Well, it is. So she's an aristocrat. So it's going to be very difficult for her to go and get a job working down the supermarket, for example. She doesn't have that option to her. She has got a little bit of money. She's relying on aristocratic friends, but really what she needs is a wealthy protector. That was just the way this system worked. I think that she could have had other options. She, Everyone was entranced by her. I think that she loved Napoleon a lot more than is often allowed. I, I really do. Or she saw something, she knew who was going yeah. places. Yes. She backed him. I think Josephine was an amazing hustler. That's what I think. But I do think that she loved him. It's, we often frame it as that she didn't love him as much because we don't have as many of her love letters to him surviving. What we've got is endless letters from Napoleon going, why won't you write to me? You haven't written to me. It's really funny. He's like a petulant teenager. And we never get the letters back from her. Well, speaking of those letters, we've got some right here. Okay. I'm going to read you one of Napoleon's love letters. Here we go. Or maybe a couple. So buckle up. December 1795, so early on, so he's not like an all-conquering hero. He's doing all right at this stage. Sweet and matchless Josephine, how strangely you work upon my heart. You start at midday. In three hours, I shall see you again. Till then, a thousand kisses, mi dolce amore. But give me none back, for they set my blood on fire. He's good, isn't he? He's good. I mean, it's a bit clockworky. I mean, what's going on pre-midday? 
He writes to her obsessively, you know, like all the time. He writes to her about how he's thinking about her all the time and then he hopes she's thinking about him and, oh, I know it's been two hours since I wrote to you last, but now I'm going to write to you again. He, he just, he can't stop it. He is obsessed with he this woman. He would have been a nightmare on WhatsApp. He would. He really would. OK, November 21st, 1796. So his career is progressing. A kiss on your heart and one much lower down. Much lower. I'm going to bed with my heart full of your adorable image. I cannot wait to give you proofs of my ardent love. How happy I would be if I could assist you at your undressing. The little firm white breast, the adorable face, the hair tied up in a scarf a la Creole. You know that I will never forget the little visits. You know, the little black forest. I kiss it a thousand times and wait impatiently for the moment I will be in it. To live within Josephine is to live in the Elysian fields. Kisses on your mouth, your eyes, your breast, everywhere. Everywhere. You're the expert. What I, do you make of that? I think he was actually quite a good lover, you know. In his letters, he writes a lot about kissing her down, down, way below and about kissing her little black forest. And, I mean, you have to remember, these are letters, right? Like, just because he's writing it doesn't mean... Josephine might have oh, been yes. there just going, well, that was a lot of promising for, for nothing. But if we're to believe his letters, he's very intimate. I think that we're often surprised by people in the past having the kind of sex that we have today, but why wouldn't they? I mean, I think he's a giver, not a taker. He seems to be, like, absolutely devoted to this woman. You're listening to Dan Snow's History Hit. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come. This is After Dark. Myths, misdeeds and the paranormal. The podcast that takes you to the shadiest corners of the past, unpicking history's spookiest, strangest and most sinister stories. I'm Maddie Pelling. And I'm Anthony Delaney. Join us every Monday and Thursday and we'll take a look at the darker side of history from haunted pubs to Houdini to witch trials and arsenic-laced breakfasts. Follow After Dark, Myths, Misdeeds and the Paranormal wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by History Hit. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And famously, annoyingly, the one letter that everyone's heard of, which is when he tells her not to wash. Oh. We, you haven't been able to stand that one up, have you? Ah, uh, 
I wish that was true because it's such a good line and I think it really gets to like just the visceral fleshy realness of sex that I'll be home I'll be in Paris in three days don't wash or yeah. don't bathe or something that's attributed to him I can't find that actually in one of his letters I can find historians that write about it but when you go through their sources they've got another historian and another book and it's it might exist it, and I've just not said but I I've never actually seen it doesn't have the Kate list of seal of approval but he does write, I want to kiss you down, down, down below and talk about kissing her little black forest. So just because he didn't say that doesn't mean that that's not something that, that he was interested in. And did in. he have a nickname for her vagina? He did. He did. Uh, Baron de Keppen. Right. Which is really, and it's really funny, but it's also, it's quite, it's like a really sweet, intimate thing that shows a really playful part of him. Mind you, I don't know who Baron de Keppen was. No, there might be a whole story there. <laughs> I mean, it might not have been a nice, playful Listeners, thing at all. <laughs> if anyone knows, please let us know. We'd love to hear your thoughts on Baron de Keppen. Uh, what is interesting, it would not be the first couple this has happened to, or I suspect the last. As soon as they get married, their relationship seems to uh, get slightly more fraught, <laughs> a bit less sexy. They get married in March 1796, and there's a letter here in which he says, I have your letters the 16th and 21st. There are many days when you don't write. What do you do then? I'm not jealous, but sometimes worried. Come soon, I warn you. If you delay, you will find me ill. Fatigue and your absence are too much. Your letters the joy of my days, and my days of happiness are not many. Because he's busy fighting the Austrians in Italy. He's not having a happy time. But is that a sense that she's not as into him as he was into her? We've got a lot of letters from Napoleon to Josephine like that. He's really upset that she hasn't written to him. And it's, it's a really interesting insight into this a brilliant military tactician. And some people think of as a tyrant, but a leader. And then you've got these letters where it, he becomes very much like a child. And he's like, why haven't you written to me? Write to me, please write. And he gets increasingly angry with her. And that bit of, I'm not jealous. I'm just, just a bit worried. Yeah. Honestly, not jealous. Not jealous. And later that year, he writes, I don't love you anymore. On the contrary, I detest you. You're a vile, mean, beastly slut. You don't write to me at all. You don't love your husband. You know how happy your letters make him. And you don't write him six lines of nonsense. And then slightly later in the letter, he goes, soon I hope I'll be holding you in my arms. Then I will cover you with a million hot kisses burning like the equator. He's all over the place, isn't he? He's all over the place. It's the, the Napoleonic equivalent of leaving a message on red, isn't it? And then not getting back to it. It is frustrating, but he gets all, like that level of anger at her. But we'll never know if that was, like, was that playful? Was that like an in-joke? Or did he genuinely mean to call his wife and a detestable slut yeah. because she wouldn't write to him? And because he was actually worried about her having He's sex actually, with other And people. he was, well, he was perhaps right to have been. <laughs> well, see, so what, what's going on at her end? What do we think is happening? She had an affair with um, a lower level, uh, well, much lower than Napoleon because he was the top, but a lower level army guy called Ippolita Charles. And it became public knowledge. Napoleon was very, very upset. And when she went to visit him, she travelled to see him, she actually brought Ippolita with her, which is, right. that's an interesting move. On, on her part, I think. But she was having affairs. It did hit the press. He knew about it. And he nearly divorced her as well. That's right. And actually, that's portrayed in the movie, isn't mm. it? Where he's in Egypt and he does hear news, I think from his brother, but he does hear news mm. in Egypt that she has been, is being unfaithful to yeah. him. Yeah. 
again though, was that was that culturally? It's France. It's France. It's France. They're rich. Like he's having affairs. He was having affairs too. He's right? having loads of affairs. He had twenty-two yeah. at least that we know about, oh, really? and a fair few illegitimate children. But you know, patriarchy. So she's the one that's <laughs> that's held up and is castigated, and he nearly divorces her, and and she has to th- literally throw herself at him and, and beg for him to take her back. And is it super embarrassing? I mean, is it public? Is it? Yeah, it's public. Is it? Yeah, it'd that's be pretty. Not good. No, it'd be embarrassing. It would for him too, not just for her. But um, yeah, there was huge public interest in this because he's the leader of the country, and what you can't even keep your wife under control. You can't even satisfy your wife in the bedroom. It's interesting in a way that he mm. takes her back. He really loves her. Yeah. He could have divorced her. He could have chucked her out. His family didn't like her very much. They didn't like her from the get-go. That was the perfect opportunity to have divorced her, but he didn't because he really, really did love her. And I think she could have walked away from that as well. And she didn't. She went back to him. It wouldn't have been as easy, but she could have been paid off and quietly gone and lived in a house somewhere. And then there's the issue of, of sons and heirs, right? Which yeah. gets dynastic and gets even more complicated, as you've often talked about when it comes to like the dynamics of sex in a dynastic culture. Because he becomes emperor in 1804, mm. and he needs to start a dynasty. Yeah, and it becomes this huge pressured thing. Why aren't there any babies? We need a baby, let's have a baby. And a baby boy got to have a baby. And she's in her late 30s or 40s by the stage? She, let's see, she was 32 when they met. She'd already had two kids. Yeah. Yeah, she must be, must be late 30s, yeah. early 40s by this point. No babies. And there was a big thing about who is it that can't get pregnant? Who is it him? Is it her? His family were really angry about this and were pushing for a divorce from Josephine. I mean, they were from the very beginning. And then he gets one of his lovers pregnant. So then it becomes this, ha ha. It wasn't me, but I'm fertile. I've just proven it. It was used as a, he's fertile, she's the problem, she's got to go. And you've written and made so many podcasts about this, like, like it's sex and relationships complicated enough, right? But then when you have to have a baby to ensure the continuity yeah. of a state, of an, a regime, then what does that, I mean, that adds a whole level to it, doesn't it? It becomes hideously transactional and about the law and like people become more like farmyard animals that like with animal husbandry, we're trying to breed them as opposed to any kind of romance because now the dynasty and France is at stake here. And it's interesting, isn't it? Like different identities. She was a lover, she was mm. a wife, then she's an empress. And well, hang on, if you're an empress, then you gotta be a baby machine. That's the rule. That's, yeah. it, I mean, it's really ugly, but that's it. You've got to make the babies and he stayed with her for so long even though no babies were coming and the pressure that he was under and even when they signed the divorce and they they separated and he went off and married the 19 year old he was still in love with her he was still besotted with her and any hereditary system is difficult but hereditary system where you're the first you've basically nicked the crown yeah you're the first one number two is quite important yeah otherwise you're just a little busted flush aren't you exactly you've got got to make those babies i thought the movie really captures that kind of tempestuous nature. They have these mm. massive fights. Then she says, you're nothing without me. And then you also see her kind of working rooms, don't you? And he's being awkward and, yeah. and sort of genius-like. And she's clearly a politician. Mm. So I think yeah, they would have been a team. They were a fantastic team, actually. And they did have a really turbulent relationship. Many people 
did. But this was a time when people didn't really marry for love. They married mm. for, for, especially if you were rich, they married for political reasons, for alliances. But I think they really, really did love each other. They could have walked away from this several times over and they didn't. They had a really tempestuous relationship. And the film, I think the film does a really good job of capturing that, actually, that, that switch all the time between we have responsibilities to France, but we love each other. And then who's actually in charge? He says to her that she's nothing without him. And then she says, you're nothing without me in a different scene. And it's this real tussle between them. And I think they nailed it. And what comes out of all of it is that these are two people that are just pretty crazy about one another. What's really interesting for me, you know, I've talked about this before, but like how, because the nature of people writing history and the, the generations that follow, they, they're not interested in that story, no, are they? So no. it is very hard for us to find source materials for this, right? Because yeah. you have every single boot on the Battle of Austerlitz is recorded about exactly where it was at exactly every point of the day. But none of the kind of blokes in the mid-19th century that are writing the first draft of history care about her influence on him and vice versa, right? It's, it's tough so to much. get there. There's always been an interest in Josephine. She was very much the it girl of the day. She was a socialite. People were fascinated by her, by her hold over him. But no, people haven't been as interested in the did he really like to go down on a question as... Well, well. And also what role she played in his regime, like yeah, in his rule. Right? Yeah, I mean, and she... She played an absolute blinder because she, he he viewed her as the place he would go to to I don't want to say calm down, but she was like this haven for him. She made him feel happy, and in the world that he lived in, that was pretty rare. I would have thought, you know, if you've just been seeing hundreds, thousands of guys having their legs blown off by cannons, you perhaps a bit of downtime is quite valuable. Yeah, he's a busy guy. He's very busy. And he's mentally very busy. Like he, because even in between the battles, he's like writing law codes and organising oh, charters. The for... Napoleonic Code. Yeah. There was a lot of good stuff that came out of the Napoleonic Code, but it wasn't particularly friendly to women. And I think that maybe Josephine playing away influenced some of that. Like he made um, husbands could divorce their wives on grounds of adultery, not the other way around. It was perfectly right for a husband to murder his wife's lover, not the other way around. So he sort of, he's, he obviously went, right, I'm going to make it illegal for you to do this ever again. And he really went to town with it. Their own little drama is played out, playing out through the rest of French history. Yeah, yeah. This enduring legal code. Exactly. And, you know, you wonder how much influence Josephine had. Because he's writing to her these love letters, but I love you, I love you, I love you. And then there's little bits about, like, oh, I'm going into battle tomorrow. Da, 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 da. Like, this, like, huge military movements are being prefaced by a, please write me a letter. Yeah. And it's you kind of wonder, like, what influence did that have if his head isn't in the game? If he's all, why has Josephine written me a letter? You I'm can't. not saying that's why I lost the Battle of Waterloo. I'm just saying, I'm just putting it out there. I'm creeping towards the position that insecure, terrified men should not be allowed to wield the power of life and death over the rest of us and control well, the course that, of history. <laughs> that's, that's an interesting yeah. point, yeah. And 200 years later, the equivalents of Napoleon have got nuclear weapons. So that is a really <laughs> exciting, really exciting thought. Um, he eventually divorced. Now, the, the divorce, interestingly... In the movie, that you get a sense that she's not quite as into it, but the divorce, she is really upset about the divorce. She seems to have bought into the imperial mission, doesn't she? That feels about right. Which... I don't think she had a choice. I don't actually think that either of them had much, much yeah. of a choice about so, that. So you're like the movie's right, and when it goes, Napoleon goes, "We have to have a divorce for France." Yeah. So I thought that was quite funny, and mm. he's just projecting. He's well, he is obviously. He always assumes that his fate is that of France as well. Yeah. But I guess it is true. The future of the regime 
and stability in France did depend on him having a kid. It did, and that's what it boils down to. And to, again, Josephine is often framed as, oh, poor Josephine, she got, was it an old or divorced? I can't remember, but whatever it was, it was very public, it would have been very embarrassing. He's gone off, and married a 19-year-old. I personally think that she played an absolute belt there because she got to keep the title of empress. He made sure that she kept all of her money, which, by the way, she spent like a drunken sailor. She lived in the Chateau Marmont, which was a huge palatial thing, absolutely loaded, and doesn't have to have sex with her whingy husband anymore. What's not to like? What's sad about that? And there's some poor Austrian princess has been ripped out of the Habsburg Palace and delivered to Napoleon. Austria's most deadly enemy. Yeah. But she bears him a son. And she didn't like him, you know. She said something like, even the sight of him would make me sick or always torture or words to that effect. But boom, there was a baby boy, done. And that baby uh, would grow up to be remembered by history as Napoleon II, although he never, although he never uh, ruled over France. Sadly, had tra- tragic life, died back with his Habsburg extended family in, in Vienna quite young. And Napoleon does take the baby to go and meet Josephine. <laughs> It's extraordinary. (laughs) He's such such a... Boundaries do not exist for this man. He's such a klutz. He's just... The idea that, you know, you've sent your wife away, your wife of 15 years, she's now living pretty much in exile, she's been nationally humiliated, so you can have this baby. You're just going to rock up at her house and go, look, this is is the baby you couldn't give me. Ta-da. For me, that just harks back. He hasn't evolved much since that first conversation with the the sex worker on the street. (laughs) He's... He doesn't no, seem to be able to... No, completely clueless, right? But that's probably why he was such a good military tactician. Not being clueless, but just being that pig-headed, that determined, that refusing to see other people's perspectives. As far as he was concerned, there's a baby. He's really happy about it. Of course she'll be happy about it. He's happy about it. That's how that one works. That's too, that's too, I've got too much empathy, Kate. That's why I'm never, <laughs> never going to conquer an empire. Just, that's it. Just, you need the psychopath yeah. part of you. There you go. It makes you feel better. And so, yeah, so he is having affairs. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's, this is France. <laughs> of course he's having affairs. He's got over his whole not wanting to have sex thing, hasn't he? Well done him. He has, rather. He's, he's, <laughs> he's moved on from that. I mean, women are throwing themselves at him. But you know what? I think that he actually viewed himself as a great romantic, which he saw as slightly different from sex. I think he saw himself as like making love to oh. especially Josephine. But he did have affairs. Um, he had affairs because he was on campaign for a long time as well. As Nelson said, every man is a bachelor beyond Gibraltar. <laughs> See, there you go. But yeah, he had relationships. There was one woman known as Pauline that he had a sustained affair with on the Egyptian campaign. She became known as Cleopatra. So other people knew about this. This wasn't secret at all. So he's playing away. There are illegitimate children, some that he acknowledges, some that he doesn't. And how much Josephine knew about this at home, I don't know. I don't know what she would have done about it, even if she did. His affair that I'm most interested in is with the Polish woman, Marie, I can't pronounce her second name. Vasilevska. And we think that may have actually shaped his policy towards Poland. He kind of resurrects Poland as a political entity. But that was quite a serious one. They had a child as well. They did. One of his most famous affairs was with Marie, the Polish aristocrat. And did he love her? I, I don't know. But it was certainly quite a famous affair. It resulted in a child which was not good news for Josephine back home because that, was, again, was used as further proof that she was the problem and not him. He did acknowledge the child, but he went back to Josephine again. 
I was really struck in the movie by Josephine's dalliance, mm. flirtatious relationship with Alexander, the Tsar of Russia. Yeah. And I thought, look at these Hollywood filmmakers talking nonsense. Looked it up. That is actually based on a, a real story at the time. That it was gossip at the time. Yeah. It, they definitely hung out. They, they definitely got on really well. They did. They did. Um, she was, was it nine years older than he was? Maybe even more than that. I'm not sure. But yeah, they definitely... They caused gossip. Yeah. They did. They hung out. They seemed to get along very well. It was an interesting move on behalf of Josephine, that's yeah. for sure. And because it, unusually, you know, 1814, Russian troops occupying Paris, so he's there, he's yep. the all-conquering hero. And they spend, like, a chunk of time together. They spend a chunk of time together in each other's house, in relative-ish privacy, enough to get the press talking. We don't know if anything actually happened. It must have been devastating for him reading those reports when he was stuck on his little island of Elba. He must have been absolutely raging. He never, ever let go of Josephine, ever, even when they were, I suppose, forced to separate. Well, and death forced them to separate, Kate. Mm. Not wish to be too poetic here. It's because that's so interesting that she never saw him return to power in 1815, did she? No, she didn't. She pegged out slightly before that, bless her. And, it, well, it, and one theory, it was said at the time she got cold walking around with the Tsar trying to impress him with her off-the-shoulder yes. dresses. Yes. But that's malicious gossip, no doubt. But like, it was around that time, so she falls ill and dies at this very dramatic juncture of history. I know. It's, she never got to see him come back. I mean, she was in her early 50s, I think, and it was an illness that came on quite suddenly. It's probably diphtheria. And it just, it just bam, which was alarmingly common for the time. But yeah, Napoleon arrived back and and she was gone. It's so... It's so sad, isn't it? It is sad. The reports of what he was actually like when he found out that she died, I mean, he was a man destroyed. Was he, he was in pieces. He was... Because he'd been away for such a long time and that she died without him and she died so suddenly and, and he thought he was coming back to see her. I mean, imagine that. Like, you, you've travelled across oceans and you've built a fleet and you've commanded ships and you've disobeyed a government in part to come and see this woman and then it's like oh sorry she, she has died actually and that's oh he was beyond devastated and then without his talismanic partner he goes and loses the battle of waterloo i love the framing of that but i'm not quite sure if not, i'm not sure she yeah well, you know but he was certainly very sad he was a very different man in 1815 to where he yeah. was in 1805. He was far less energetic, far more listless. He probably could have defeated the Prussians and the Brits if he'd been a little bit, shown a bit more activity. Do you think? After the Battle of Ligny, yeah. But yeah, so I want, you know, that, it all contributes, no doubt, right? To his mental state. And... I think his mental state deteriorated. I mean, what he'd been through, he had a whole lifetime of this, yeah. of political uncertainty, the instability of the political yeah. life. Like, all right, so you're on top of the world one minute and everyone's cheering you and giving you flowers, but the next minute the guillotine is out and they're chasing you through the streets. I mean, the stress of that. I just, break anyone. I just think in general we're so poorly placed to judge these people in the past and really yeah. and try and get inside their heads because they'd seen trauma like we can't believe. You can't even imagine like the stuff that he would have seen. And, and her from her imprisonment and, her, and elsewhere and right. And then he sees the most horrendous things. Yeah. And then like the one thing that cheers him up is going out with Josephine and she's gone. So Josephine's gone. Napoleon followed pretty soon afterwards. Mm. Two stories that are contested. One is that he did say Josephine on his death, what his last words were Josephine. Yeah. It is contested. Okay. I think that it's... You're giving me that academic look. I am, I am, which is that bit where you have to be the academic and come yeah, and spoil everything for okay. everyone. I would put money on the fact he was thinking about her when he was on his deathbed, but even if it's not true, 
it's part of their mythology and it's part of the fact that we recognise how much he did love this woman. And that's the fascinating thing about him. He has this reputation. He's a conqueror yep. and he's an emperor. But the word lover is always quite close because of his relationship, which is not things you get with certain other titanic figures from history. That's true, but I can think of a couple of... There's a couple of Henry VIII and... Like, no, because... No, Julius I mean. Caesar. Yeah, but they're all shaggers, but you don't go Caesar, conqueror, lover. Even though he was an absolute shagger, right? He was. Now, Nelson, you do, because in a way, like, Nelson and Napoleon have this kind of fascinating twin narrative yeah. around being warriors but also lovers, which is curious. Nelson certainly did. Yeah. His affair with Emma Hamilton, he really loved her as well. Yeah, I think maybe Napoleon stands out as he's a lover and a fighter. Yeah. Katelyn, thank you very much for coming on and telling me all about Napoleon's sex life. It was my pleasure. Thank you for asking me. By the early 1810s, the good times were pretty much over. Napoleon had only just survived a disastrous, a harrowing campaign in Russia in 1812, which was happening alongside catastrophic defeats in the Iberian Peninsula. In 1813, he suffered probably his most consequential defeat of all, the Battle of Leipzig. On the 6th of April, 1814, he'd been forced to abdicate the throne and go into exile. He was in his mid-40s. He'd been exiled to the tiny Mediterranean island of Elba, just off the coast of Italy. He had technical sovereignty over this island, but it was a pale, tiny, humiliating shadow of the empire that he'd once ruled over. His second wife, Marie-Louise, and their son had returned to her native Austria, and it was here the land of Josephine's death on May the 29th, 1814. He lost his throne. He lost the only woman who, later, he'd claimed he'd ever loved. Since their separation in 1810, Josephine and Napoleon had maintained a fond, a sentimental correspondence. When he found out she died, he locked himself in his room for two days. He was distraught. He refused to see anyone. Her death was a reminder, a kind of symbol of his past greatness. They'd endured such trials together. They'd experienced his meteoric rise from the melee of the revolution to Emperor of France. He'd shared the news with her of the battles he'd won and those he'd lost. He'd become the man that he was, spurred on by her love. Throughout her life, Josephine had surrounded herself with the sight, and the scent of violets. Two days after his dramatic return from exile, Napoleon had visited Malmaison, the private residence where Josephine had lived, and collected violets from her garden. He would wear them in a locket until his death, a reminder of their tumultuous but deep connection. The remaining years of Napoleon's life showed that he would never regain the heights that he'd reached when Josephine was by his side. He'd escaped Elba in 1815, nine months after Josephine's death. He sailed to the French mainland with a group of around a thousand supporters. He'd managed to recapture Paris, where he was welcomed by cheering crowds as the new king, Louis XVIII, had fled. But Napoleon's enemies were not going to underestimate him ever again. The moment he returned, a coalition of allies, Austrians, British, Prussians, Dutch, 
Russians, French, Portuguese prepared for war against the newly reinstated French emperor. Napoleon raised a new army. His plan was to strike each of those enemy one by one before they could unite effectively against him. In June 1815, he marched into Belgium. Napoleon's troops struck the Prussian army at the Battle of Ligny and won a victory. But it would be Napoleon's last. Just two days later, on June the 18th, he fought the Battle of Waterloo. His forces were crushed by a British allied and Prussian army. On June the 22nd, 1815, a few days after Waterloo, Napoleon was forced to abdicate once again, this time for good. In October 1815, he was exiled, not to the Mediterranean, but to a remote British-held island, St. Helena, in the South Atlantic Ocean, one of the most isolated places on Earth. And it was here that he'd endure his final days. Tomorrow, in the final episode in our series, we explore Napoleon's remaining years on that rocky, isolated island, and we look at Napoleon's legacies, the sum of his parts, the commander, the emperor, the lover, the man whose very life is now a psychological concept, the Napoleon delusion, the Napoleon complex. What does Napoleon still mean 200 years later? Why are books still being written and massive movies being made? Was he brilliant? Or lucky? Or both? I'm joined again by Andrew Roberts, his biographer, who probably knows him best, and we're going to examine the mythology of Napoleon. Join me for our final episode tomorrow. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.